The COVID-19 pandemic showed us how a microscopic virus could upend our lives. There is so much out there that we need to understand. But for every threat, there are heroes working at the edges of science and policy to protect us. I'm Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, former Detroit Health Director and host of Crooked Media's America Dissected. Every episode, I talk to the doctors, scientists, culture makers, and policy leaders who are working out new ways to protect us against our biggest threats. New episodes of America Dissected every Tuesday. Listen on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody wants to think about dying. But when they're asked, the majority of Americans say they want to die at home, surrounded by loved ones at peace spiritually. At its best, hospice care makes all of those things possible. The hospice social worker said, continue to say the things you want to say because she can hear you even if she can't respond. A team of nurses and social workers, chaplains, counselors, working to honor people's wishes and help them pass with dignity, sometimes even joy. We could pray out loud, we could shout, we could sing. And that was one of the things that made the most significant difference in my mother's capacity to die well. Since 1983, Medicare has covered hospice, paid for 25 million people to die more on their own terms, without the aggressive medical interventions that taint so many families' final memories. But the program also has some serious shortcomings. Today, as hospice celebrates its 40th anniversary on Medicare, the middle-aged policy faces a midlife crisis. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. About half of people on Medicare will use hospice care before they die. But at 40 years old, the popular program is facing some tough challenges. Tradeoff senior producer Leslie Walker is here today to talk us through hospice at this important crossroads. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Dan. So Medicare has paid for hospice services since the early 1980s. Let's start with the good, Leslie. What do we know about its upside? It's pretty good, Dan. I mean, when you look at the data compared to people who don't get hospice, people who do tend to be more satisfied, get less unwanted, aggressive care, more emotional and spiritual support. And for some patients, not all, but some, hospice saves Medicare thousands of dollars, mostly because it keeps people out of the hospital. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable, right? That hospice actually has managed to be that rare healthcare win-win, deliver better quality at lower costs. At the same time, though, Leslie, the basics of Medicare's hospice policy, who is eligible, how it pays providers, has been largely the same for the last 40 years. And as you know, I'm also in my 40s. Yes, and I am aware you, of that. <laughs> yes, I know you know. When, when you get there, you need some upkeep from time to time. Things can start to fall apart on you, like my right knee. It hurts. So, <laughs> If hospice went to the doctor for a kind of 40-year-old checkup, Leslie, what would show up? Definitely some aches and pains, Dan. Three big ones. Here's the first. About half of people who die on Medicare never get help from hospice. Many others get this kind of care only days, maybe hours before they die. That's especially true for Black, Hispanic, Asian, and Native people, groups where only about a third of people get hospice compared to about half of white people. Given hospice's benefits, Leslie, do we know why so many people are putting it off or just skipping it altogether? One big reason, Dan, 
in order to get hospice, the rules make you give up a lot. Any attempt at curing your disease, chemotherapy, surgery, treatment, you have to stop it all. This decision between getting extra help and giving up hope, it's so tough, providers, they actually call it the terrible choice. Yeah. So you're saying people who don't want to make that terrible choice, who want to keep fighting, keep going, Medicare's rules actually prevent them from getting hospice, right? Exactly. And that leaves this really important question. What do you do with those patients and families? How does Medicare help them die with dignity too? They're still ill. They're still struggling with many things. They still need these support services. I talked to Bethany Snyder about this. She's the chief medical officer at Louisville-based Hospice Health. She told me right now, the only way for most people to get the end-of-life support they say they want is by choosing hospice. If they don't, Medicare just doesn't pay for much of that kind of help. The kind of help that keeps people from dying in ways they don't want, in ICUs surrounded by machines, at home and pain alone. We do not have a great way to serve that population. There has to be more than what's available today. Okay, so not helping as many people as it could is this middle-age program's first problem. What's the next one, Leslie? Well, it's kind of the opposite issue, Dan. There's this whole other group of hospice patients that many think Medicare spends too much money on. And there's a pretty simple reason why. The Medicare hospice benefit has not evolved to meet the changing needs of the people who use it. David Stevenson, who's a health policy professor at Vanderbilt, told me ever since Medicare started covering hospice back in 1983, you remember that day, right, Dan? Sure do. Third grade, my friend. (laughs) It's paid providers this flat daily fee, whether someone needs 10 visits a week or two. Now, back in the 80s, most patients who went on hospice had advanced cancer, and sadly, you know, they died pretty quickly. Plus, if things went really sideways, Medicare just stopped paying after 210 days. So what you're saying, Leslie, is those two factors, very sick patients and a hard cap on hospice days, kind of kept costs in check. Exactly. But over time, hospice became more popular with more people. People with diseases a lot less predictable than cancer, dementia, heart failure, COPD. Isn't this a good thing? I mean, Medicare wants more people using this kind of help, right? It is. It is. But it also raises this big question, right? Is one flat rate for all these different people dying from all these different diseases really the best way to pay for all this care anymore? Especially since that 210-day cap, Dan, Congress nixed it years ago, and hospice stays now last much longer on average. I see. So Medicare is paying for a lot more days, including ones where It's hard to say, honestly, if someone's actually at the end of their life. Basically, taxpayers, in theory, are losing money to this sort of relic that is the day rate. That's right. And and to be fair here, Medicare did create a second, slightly lower rate for some patients a few years back. But people see it as a pretty minor fix to this major problem. And what is the major problem? Medicare's hospice program has a budget, right? And it's spiked 50% in the last decade. It's now over $20 billion a year. And that brings us to the third and final problem, a whole lot of fraud and abuse. 
A whole bunch of for-profit hospice companies have come pouring into the market, and reports suggest they're taking advantage of that day rate. In fact, some of these businesses are so profitable, Dan, private equity and big insurers are buying them up for billions of dollars. I'm curious, Leslie, when you say fraud and abuse, what does that look like on the ground? So one report from the Department of Health and Human Services estimated companies are cheating Medicare out of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But what really stuck with me, Dan, was this damning investigation by Ava Kaufman at ProPublica. She tells stories of hospice marketers combing through church prayer lists, stocking Meals on Wheels vans. People, Dan, who didn't realize they'd been enrolled in hospice until after their chemotherapy had been cut off. That is so disturbing, Leslie. Okay, so just to review the 40-year checkup here, Medicare is spending too much on some people. Some companies are fleecing both the programs and patients. And at the same time, Medicare wants a bunch more people who could legitimately benefit from these services to get them. Did I miss anything? No, I think that's the rundown, Dan. Thanks for the recap. (laughs) Indeed. I'm no doctor here, but based on my reporting, when I hear all those issues, right, they're all symptoms of this single underlying problem. And it's a problem that a lot of you Gen Xers have. The Medicare hospice benefit is stuck in the 80s. The 80s, Leslie? You're going to blame this on the 80s? The 80s were the best. 1985, my friend. Don't fif- even start with the Chicago Bears. Don't do 15 it. 15-1, the Super Bowl shuffle. We are the Bears. Shuffle crew. Shuffle nine. I'm going to shuffle on out of this booth if you don't stop. <laughs> All right. But seriously, Dan, Medicare is finally trying to get with the times. Update its hospice program with a pretty ambitious pilot, including 15 insurers in 23 states. A classic midlife crisis shakeup, Leslie. I love it. I mean... It's not quite a Mustang or a motorcycle. It is still a health policy pilot after all, but I'll tell you more about it after the break. Balancing the needs of your business and your employees has never been more important. Do both with Concur Expense. Speed up your finance processes, ensure compliance, and pay your employees on time when you automate your expenses. And with a handy mobile app, your teams can work from anywhere while focusing on what matters most, the bottom line. Move your business forward with SAP Concur Solutions. Visit concur.com to learn more. Welcome back. Medicare's hospice program is facing a midlife crisis. A policy designed 40 years ago no longer fits the people and providers using the service today, leading to problems with access, waste, and inequity. Medicare recognizes its shortcomings and decided to test a pilot that our sources tell us has a real shot at becoming national policy down the road. And that national policy would put private insurers in charge of hospice for tens of millions of people. Senior producer Leslie Walker is back to tell us more about this ambitious project that launched in 2021. Leslie, let's start with who is involved. 
Some pretty big names, Dan. Insurers like Aetna, Humana, United, more than 100 hospice agencies all across 23 states plus Puerto Rico. Sounds pretty big, Leslie. Uh, How would you describe what's at stake? I mean, we're talking here, Dan, about how people die these important and difficult last days, maybe a family's final memories of someone. That's really what we're talking about. And any kind of policy change to that end of life care can be dangerous. There's this cautionary tale that's worth keeping in mind. It comes from the UK. First tonight, the case of a young mother whose family say she died because she was given an unexplained dose of morphine. This program known as the Liverpool Care Pathway encouraged doctors to start more hospital patients on hospice-like services. We went along because if a doctor tells you that someone's poorly and near to death, you have to believe them. But under this Liverpool Care Program, Dan, hospitals were offered financial incentives to do this. And some doctors were caught pressuring vulnerable patients and their families to give up treatments before they were ready. Kaylee Hollabone thought cancer doctors were doing their best for her mum. In fact, she'd been put on the controversial Liverpool care pathway and was being deprived of food and fluids without consent. The policy erupted into this massive scandal, lost public trust, and was ended in 2013. Now, the nuts and bolts of the Liverpool model are really different than the experiment Medicare is running. But what they both share is banking on money, financial incentives to motivate hospitals, in the case of the UK, and insurers here at home to help more people get on hospice. And and the moral of that story, Leslie, is monkeying around with money when it's tied to the care of dying people is risky business. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of what Medicare is testing to understand its potential risks and its potential benefits. So here's the big picture, Dan. Medicare is putting private insurers on the financial hook for some people's hospice care, and in exchange, giving those companies more say over how they pay for and deliver that care. Right now, about half of the 64 million people on Medicare have what's called Medicare Advantage, or MA, which is run by insurance companies. And those insurance companies get paid a lump sum to manage all of a person's care, right, Leslie? Almost all of their care, Dan, except for hospice. Before this pilot began, if an MA patient wanted hospice, the federal government stepped in to pick up the tab, deliver that care. Wait, wait, wait. So as someone is dying, their insurance company essentially stops paying the bills? Are you serious? I am serious. And here's how Brown University researcher Vince Moore described this whole cluster. Right now, what happens is your MA plan gets to wipe their hands clean. You say, okay, you're on hospice. Bye-bye. And that's it. And there's no continuity. There's no doctor. There's no nothing there. They don't even transfer the records. That sounds like a fragmented Frankenstein nightmare. Seems like an obvious improvement that this experiment keeps people's MA plans on the hook for their care until the very end. And what's it do, Leslie, to address the other middle age aches that you ran down before the break? The government's basically letting insurance companies here make two major changes to hospice care for people who have Medicare Advantage. First, companies can pay the hospice providers in the pilot whatever they want, however they want, instead of that flat day rate. Second, the insurers can do a lot more to bring that half of people who never choose hospice into the fold. Those people who want to keep treating their condition keep fighting. Exactly. 
those folks can now get that last round of chemo, that last surgery, and still get this care at the same time. And insurers can even offer a kind of hospice light, I guess, to sick people who aren't quite yet at the end, get them on a kind of on-ramp. The whole idea here, Dan, is to test turning hospice from this kind of cliff into more of a bridge, a continuum of services that gets the right level of care to the right people at the right time. And it seems like if that happens, then Medicare will have tackled two of the midlife problems, spending its money more efficiently and bringing these helpful services, counseling, nurse visits, a hospital bed for your home, to more people who say that they want them. And and what about that third sort of scary ache and pain, the, the, the fraud and abuse, Leslie? Right. So as many of us know firsthand, insurance companies, in an effort to control costs, enhance quality, they develop these networks, right, of doctors and hospitals we can use. Now, in this experiment, they're curating networks of hospices, too. And soon, Medicare is going to let them steer patients only toward preferred providers, and in theory, away from bad actors. Got it. So that's the glass half full take on this. But this whole experiment assumes that insurers who have their own bottom lines to worry about will be more fiscally responsible and make sure people at the same time get great care in their final days. Leslie, you and I both know that is a huge assumption. It is. There's no denying that. And giving insurance companies more control means giving them more control. Insurers right now are playing hardball with hospices. Some companies have already sliced hospice payments by 10 to 12 percent. If this test eventually becomes national policy, Dan, depending on how much latitude Medicare ultimately gives insurers, companies could cut rates so low that some hospices go out of business. So that's the downside for providers, which sounds real. What about patients? What happens to them if insurance companies have more control? Yeah. So the original hospice policy is this kind of one size fits all benefit, right? Its simplicity is its beauty. People on Medicare know what they're getting. Hospice providers know what they're giving. But with insurers behind the wheel, they could design tons of different flavors of hospice, which could leave patients and providers confused about what's really covered. So you're saying, I think, you could end up spending really important final moments with your loved one waiting on hold with an insurance company to tell you what's going to get paid for and what won't. Exactly. I mean, not a great way to spend those final hours. So, Leslie, you, you've sort of painted these two possible outcomes of putting insurers in charge, which, again, based on our reporting, could very likely become reality for people on Medicare Advantage. One, where insurers use their resources and incentives to save taxpayers some money, improve the quality of these vital services, and get them to more people. The other painting, though, far less rosy, is one where people in some of the worst moments of their lives can't get the hospice care that they want. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the history of managed care in a nutshell, Dan. Either way, assuming Medicare Advantage keeps growing at this speed, it sounds like insurance companies are going to be more involved in some people's hospice care. The big question remains, is this going to be good or bad? So let's zoom out to close, Leslie. Obviously, this whole experiment, handing the reins to insurers, 
is just one way Congress could revitalize this 40-year-old program. Instead, they could do away with Medicare's flat payment rate, nix restrictions like that terrible choice, but those policies on their own could backfire and open the door to new kinds of abuse. So passing the buck and those tough questions to the insurers seems kind of like an easier path, right? It is, I think, from a political perspective, you know, takes the heat off lawmakers, puts someone else in charge of cutting providers' payments, telling patients no. But from a policy perspective, Dan, it's a real gamble. I mean, I go back to that Liverpool care pathway and the scandal there. When you change financial incentives around end-of-life care, whether for insurers or providers, you just have to tread very carefully. The stakes are sky high and unintended consequences can get ugly fast. Leslie, thanks for your work on this story. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Dan. Medicare's hospice pilot was slated to end next year, but got extended until 2030, just last month in March. In an email to tradeoffs, Liz Fowler, deputy administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, said, quote, ensuring that people with Medicare have access to high quality and coordinated care is a top priority. She emphasized the project has guardrails designed to protect patient choice, and she pointed to the agency's, quote, comprehensive monitoring strategy to address and track any unintended consequences. More on the agency's response and the policy details of the pilot can be found at tradeoffs.org. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. A new class of drugs can help people lose up to a fifth of their body weight and manage serious health conditions associated with obesity. They're being called game changers, but they're also raising difficult questions. Because there's already such a value placed on thinness in society, there is concern that this message that obesity is a disease could be taken too far. How these breakthrough treatments are changing how we treat and talk about obesity. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage of Medicare sustainability is supported in part by Arnold Ventures. Additional thanks to Karen Bullock, Tori Fields, Rebecca Anhang Price, Sally Stearns, and Joan Tino. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Elizabeth Munich, Lonnie Hanauer, and Stephen Olgan. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. 
The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoff staff, advisors, or funders. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder, and more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the anti-trans hate machine, A Plot Against Equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.